Hi, listeners. Delaney here, assistant producer of the Sausage of Science podcast. A brief warning. This week's episode contains some explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. I've got nothing. I think that "Hey Chris" was all the energy I can muster for today's interview. And I was afraid you'd ask me how I'm doing. How are you doing, Chris? Uh, <laughs> that uh, was about all the energy you might be able to muster today, too. Yeah, you know, it's mid-semester, COVID, all the things. My frustration tolerance is real low. Mm. The things that can that can roll off of me usually, I'm just kind of like, please don't tell me another problem. I don't want to hear about it. Please don't tell me the same problem. I don't want to hear about it. Please just tell me about sports because that's all I've got the bandwidth for at the moment. Yeah, I don't think I even have capacity for sports other than as it relates to class. Uh, I barely have capacity to do class, much less capacity to even open up, you know, manuscript drafts and things of that sort. However, I did, because I have a problem, make an expansion pack to the science manual for Halloween science experiments, because that had to happen, right? I I did. Well, you wouldn't let me ask you about this last time. So let me ask you this time. Tell me about this science pack you've developed, Kara. <laughs> I can't remember why I wouldn't let you. Because I think, like, Alex was already on. And I didn't want to steal thunder or anything from Alex. Because uh, I'd already ranted about a few other things. And oh, still wasn't awesome. time for it. Yeah, well, I think it's appropriate. It I think it's appropriate to bring it up now. Especially because our, our guest, Athena Eftipis, who we've had on before. We're going to be focusing a lot on, you know, her SciComm and other outreach. So... This is an appropriate place and time, I guess, to talk about it. Anyway, so what this was, was never intended to be SciComm or outreach in any way. I have a six-year-old niece who turned six this past Saturday and a year and a half old nephew. And back in like late August, early September, my brother said, Ruby, who is my niece, has been asking for a new science kit because, you know, they got a couple of those pre-made kits and they've run through all the science experiments and like she's bored and she wants something new and like that's totally an anti-Kara thing to do and so I started like of course I'm gonna do this so I started researching some of the kits available on the market and they were all kind of terrible they limit the number of experiments you can do and then the instructions are poor the explanation of concepts are poor and then kind of relating that to real life whatever was learned in said experiment relating it to real life didn't exist and so I said, screw it. I'm going to make my Sounds own. Sounds like how I ride my labs. <laughs> At this point, class is just stream of consciousness for me. Like, I'm just going to spew information I have and maybe I'll pick something up. Anyway, so I said, screw it. I'm going to make my own lab manual. And I don't think I had an expectation of how big I was going to make it, like how many. But it ended up being 28 experiments. And now there is a five experiment Halloween expansion pack because, of course, you need expansion packs. And Halloween. And Halloween. You're like queen of, queen of Halloween. I know. And my niece, is, her birthday is October 24th, and she wanted a spooky cake this year. And so, you know, like, she's totally my niece. Anyway, so there were 28 experiments, and then each experiment has reminders of what to do before you start the experiment. Like, wear your personal protective gear, make your predictions before actually touching any of the materials, that kind of stuff. Health and safety cautions, which there are a few, but not many for, you know, a six-year-old science experiment. Materials and methods. And then there's a a section on what's happening. So, like, actually explains the concepts and gives, you know, little diagrams of what actually occurred. And then a, a very brief thing of what kind of job or scientist uses experiments mm. like this to actually, you know, do what they do on a day-to-day life. And then an example of a female scientist that, that does that job. Because I'm all about female empowerment. And with a six-year-old niece, you, you got to get them young with that. I, I made it and I was super excited. And I took a couple of pictures of it and either intelligently or 
stupidly posted those pictures on Facebook and Twitter. Just being like, yeah, yeah. Uh, Just thinking like, oh, look at this fun thing I did. And it went low-key viral on Twitter. What's low-key viral? Well, I mean, it wasn't like... Pretty sure it went viral. I mean, it wasn't like tens of thousands. I had over 1,200 Twitter direct messages asking for copies of Ruby's Lab Manual. viral. Ah, that's low-key viral. viral. (laughs) Anyway, so we went low-key viral, and I lost an entire week of my life distributing this lab manual to folks and then making a more downloadable, friendly version. So (laughs) it reminds me of how when uh, my kids were in third grade and I was asked to offer an anthropology course as part of a partnership at their local elementary school. At first, I wasn't going to do it because it was going to take so much time out. But Mm -hmm. again, you know, it's like, of course, right? Like how, how often do we get the opportunity to teach what we are passionate about to mm-hmm. our young, impressionable relatives slash children. And so I did it and it, it, it was so well received that I have now offered it for 10 years and it's turned out to be, I say with some pride and also some chagrin, probably the most important thing I've ever been involved with. Yeah, you know, right? That's That's how I always feel about every outreach thing I've ever done, whether you know, it's science communication workshops or this lab manual, they always end up feeling far more impactful than any research I have or ever will do. Yeah. I don't know how to feel about that. It's like the least respected thing when it comes to tenure and promotion is evaluated so poorly by administration that like, I don't know, I have an internal conflict. Life is that conflict, I think. (laughs) So tell us about our guest today, Chris, who was also deeply involved in SciComm. So speaking of ourselves and our zombification, as COVID in this semester is doing, um, Dr. Athena Actipis, I'm going to ask her the correct Greek pronunciation of her name, is an evolutionary psychologist and assistant professor of psychology at Arizona State University. She is one of the co-hosts of the Zombified podcast. Uh, She's a member of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance and was one of the main hosts of the zombie apocalypse medicine meeting they were just gracious enough to have me take part in as well as our producers which just happened a few days ago we interviewed her back in the summer for an earlier podcast with lee cronk for the human generosity project and she's just an all-around badass public engagement person who has a book out this year everything she has called the cheating cell How Evolution Helps Us Understand and Treat Cancer with Princeton University Press. And you can listen to it on Audible. It's got got an Audible version of everything, which not enough of our academic books do, because that's how I digest rapidly a lot of my books Mm -hmm. nowadays. So, hello. Hello, hello. How's the door? Just sprang onto my screen. (laughs) This fence is getting replaced and it's between us and the neighbors and the neighbors, their deck is like on our property on the other side of the fence and it's rotting. And so it's like, they have to come out and say what they want to do too. So it's like, yeah, it's a whole big thing. <laughs> exactly. Also, look it's at this setup that you've got going on here. This amazing mic. This is oh, fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. When coronavirus hit, I was like, all right, I'm going to be doing a lot from home and thought, okay, let's just, let's just go all in. So. Yeah. So, so listeners should know, and I, I got to see this when I was on channel Z last week, week before yeah. for the zombie apocalypse medicine meeting. So Athena has, uh, she looks very professional with her, her, her headphones cans, as we call them in the industry. Not like we don't all have those on, but, those but also <laughs> uh, probably a Yeti mic on a boom. And then, but it's, but a, it's a sure, it's a sure mic. Okay. All right. Sure yeah. mic. Um, I'm just guessing because I only know the name of one brand. And it's Yeti, which is easy to remember. Right. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and then behind her are framed pictures of zombie guests, I'm guessing, or episodes from season one. Season one of Zombified. So very, very shiny and professional and glamorous and don't don't forget um there's my kombucha right there i was gonna ask you about the kombucha the other day because i 
recognized the the mother floating back there mm -hmm. and was going to ask you about that and lament how my family rebelled against my kombucha brewing because <gasps> oh. they thought I was poisoning them and threw it all out. What? I think what we're hearing is like Chris's oozing jealousy at this point. Or maybe dripping. Pretty Are much. you dripping or oozing with jealousy? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Probably a little bit of everything. <laughs> Right, so you are not even a first-time guest on our show. You are a second-time guest on The Sausage of Science. And last time we talked about, you know, your academic and intellectual origins and how you got into the field and decided to pursue it. But now we want to take a little bit of a different track and learn about how you got so involved in public engagement and what has encouraged you uh, to start it and to maintain, like, the rapid-fire pace at which you maintain your public engagement. Well, thank you for that praise. I don't think I've ever like started a conversation that's like, how did you manage to do so much? Because for me, it's always just like, I want to do this stuff, you know? <laughs> and what um, we were just talking about in the intro, it's the stuff we want to do that doesn't get quite as recognized or respected as we hope. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, thankfully, like, I think right now we're at this sort of transition point where there is more appreciation for public engagement that scientists do. But I mean, I think even in the last year or two, that shift has been happening. So it's like all the stuff that I started kind of because I couldn't not do it. I was just like, I want to do this um, is stuff that now I'm actually putting on my CV and is something that, you know, at least in my department is being valued or starting to be valued. So that's exciting that that transition is happening. And yeah, I mean, whatever we can do to push that forward. I mean, it seems like there's a huge opportunity in academia for, you know, the people who do want to be bridging between academia and the public to do that and to, you know, help educate general audiences and also make people understand like what the value is of the science that gets done in, you know, institutions that, you know, not everybody has the privilege of being a part of, right? Mm. So I think it's important. Yeah, so I'm going to argue that part of the acceptance, right? Because I think that I, I have a similar, uh, I have similar good luck in that my department also values and recognizes it. And my institutions granted me tenure, knock on wood, will also give me my next promotion. But that comes with also the other pieces that they expect in your highly productive researcher. You have a book out, which is what we hope to talk to you about today. I assume, yes, exactly. That, 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 <laughs> I know, we were both doing the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and as I mentioned, your, your book is on Audible, right? So yeah. like the accessibility of it is, is remarkable. I'm remarking on it. That is that is a remarkable thing. It's hard to get academic books that I can listen to because I don't have the attention span to read things anymore. And also I can process them a lot faster. So I wonder how, which piece came first? How did you manage that balance? So the honest answer is I, you know, I, I've been interested in these questions from a very, very early age. Like I started reading, I would say, you know, like the popular science of evolution when I was in high school. Like I would go to my local bookstore and just read. So my initial exposure to science was through these authors that were sort of academic pop science crossovers. And, and that's what kind of gave me my first taste of science. And, and it's, it's what whet my appetite for the primary literature, for, you know, reading papers, for reading, you know, things that maybe are a little harder to make sense of without assistance. <laughs> but it, it, that's really kind of where I, where I started in terms of my own exposure. And I think, you know, having good writing or, or other ways of communicating um, that that people are able to really resonate with. It's, it's what provides that entrance mm -hmm. into the world of science. And, you know, not everybody does, nor should every scientist be an exceptional communicator. I mean, you know, everybody kind of has a, a place to sit, in, um, you know, that makes sense. But 
ultimately to have a, you know, kind of vibrant scientific community, we kind of need that, that bridge um, so that people like, you know, my 16 year old self um, can get that introduction into, into science. So um, yeah, so I mean, it's kind of like that, that was my beginning. And then I was really academic for a long time, I'd say. Sorry, that, that <laughs> the noise. The zombies are, are trying to break in. They're yeah, they're knocking on the at my back door right now. But I'll try to keep them. I'll keep them back before you know at least uh, to get this interview done. And that I'll, team I'll never gets old, does it? And no, it doesn't really. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I mean, then I kind of was pretty standard academic for like you know grad school and you know my my postdoc and then the the whole issue of kind of communicating with broader audiences kind of came to the fore for me really in the last five, six years. And, you know, and it really started just, you know, because I think some of these themes were, were quite general. Mm -hmm. And I realized, you know, they're, they're things that span a lot of different disciplines. And so when you start thinking about, okay, well, how do you communicate across disciplines? a lot of those same things come up that come up in communicating just with general audiences who are interested and willing to work a little bit to try to understand something. Yeah. Uh, I'll just interject as, as someone who's personally failed to host, uh, I wouldn't say, I shouldn't say failed. I'm, I'm being too hard on myself because we did it three or four times, but I've, I've, ho I've put together and hosted an interdisciplinary evolution and science meeting and i found it so difficult so difficult to find a sweet spot between shared knowledge of interdisciplinary scholars right and then enough granularity to excite people who do this every day yeah and so so i i really i really had a lot of fun i really enjoyed although i couldn't attend nearly as much as i would have liked to I, of course we all love being in person but you know, you're, the theme you've got going on and how you've pulled all that together makes it fun. So congrats on that. I mean, the fact is it's fun for me and that's kind of what keeps me, you know, coming back to it as a, a way of kind of conceptualizing things. And I mean, the fact is everybody is so freaking busy, right? Mm. And so like for people to want to make the time to do something that's not required, there has to be something you know in it in terms of you know that like enjoyment of that engagement with um the unknown and i think this idea of zombification kind of offers that right i mean there's the unknown in that you know zombification applies to so many different aspects of human existence so you're going to learn about something that you don't already know about if you listen to the podcast or you know come to zam but there's also this kind of like metaphysical specter of the unknown, right? Like what are the things you don't know that are affecting your behavior? Mm -hmm. And um, I think that there is, there's something really compelling about like, you know, oh, you might actually get some self-knowledge or some existential knowledge about like what it means to exist and is, you know, free will a thing or not, or how do we think about that? Um, so it, I think it appeals to this kind of need that a lot of us have to, to be at that edge of what we do and what we don't know. So is free will a thing? I mean, we certainly think of it as a thing, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it is one of the topics that we come to a lot with the podcast. Uh, are you asking my opinion? Or? I was. I was just because you mentioned it. This yeah. is this is something I remember from my own graduate work and sort of having my mind blown by Dieter Steckless when I was at Rutgers and reading some of the types of books you're talking about. And I would say no, but that sets up a whole other podcast episode that we're not having right now. And yeah, and yeah. If you want to know if free will exists, listen to Zombify. <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's a complicated issue, obviously. And if you say free will does not exist, then that opens up a whole pot of ethical worms or uh, that can of ethical worms, I guess, that uh, you have to kind of be prepared to deal with as well. But, you know, in terms of like, where does our behavior come from? Mm -hmm. 
part of that is something inside us, but then there are many, many influences that um, come from others, whether they be humans or microbes or these little computers that we carry around with us in our pockets all the time that uh, demand our attention constantly. So, I mean, it's fascinating. And this is why I think both Chris and I are attracted to your work in that you have this zombification. So using this really great metaphor and example that so many people can relate to through pop culture and, you know, using that as a vehicle for evolutionary psychology, free will versus, you know, the various things that control us. But then here you come a few years back with this article about cancer, which just seems like what in the world? How did you connect all of these different dots? And I know we talked about that a little bit uh, the last time we interviewed you, that that Cancer Across Life Forms paper, I think is just gorgeous and I really enjoy it. Uh, and so we want to promote the book today, which seems like it was an extension from that article. And if you could tell us, very briefly remind us again, how you got interested in cancer, and then especially at it with a, from an evolutionary approach that convinced you to write a book. Yes, okay, well... If you want to know how cancer relates to zombies, I can give you an answer to that question. And then we can kind of like back it up to like how the book came about. So one way that you could think about cancer cells is that cancer is like a zombie apocalypse happening inside your body, right? It's like these like rogue elements that just go crazy and they're like consuming everything and messing everything up, making a mess. And um, you know, if the zombie apocalypse is not contained, kept under control somehow, it can be really devastating for the society. And that is kind of the situation with cancer in the body. Um, Cancer is essentially like a cellular cheater that takes over the normal processes that should be happening in a body, which you can think of as a cellular society, and kind of breaks down the infrastructure that would make that society, that cellular society work. So I really think of cancer as this cellular cheater, or if you want to think of it more colorfully as a sort of zombie apocalypse happening inside you. So so that's one way of, of kind of seeing where the links are. The way that I kind of got to thinking about cancer really goes back um, to my, um, my work on computational modeling of cooperation that I did more than a decade ago, really looking at, you know, what Like when is cooperation stable? When does it get undermined by cheating? And um, then kind of applying these same ideas to thinking about multicellular bodies as these sort of bastions of cooperation that have to deal with this problem of cellular cheating arising because essentially what's happening in our body all the time is cellular evolution, somatic evolution, where cells that have sort of a evolutionary, um, you know, upper hand when it comes to proliferating, when it comes to surviving, they are the ones that become more frequent just in the population of the cells of our body over time. So that selects essentially for these cheating cells that are more cancer-like. And that's really the reason that cancer happens is because of this evolutionary process inside the body that can um, sometimes favor these cells that are starting the miniature cellular zombie apocalypse. And yet, as you point out, there seems to be some level of cooperation or reciprocal altruism or maybe mutualism among cancer cells within the body. So how do you how do you fit that in? Yeah, so this is, you know, a, a very interesting, much broader point, actually, that you bring up, Chris, which is, Um, very often, if you're talking about cooperation, you have to say, well, you know, cooperation at what level, Mm. right? And so, you know, our multicellular bodies, when they're functioning well, um, they're probably the most uh, astounding example of cooperation that exists, period. Um, And when you have cancer cells arise in the body, um, those cells can start to sort of exploit those cooperative systems of the body um, for their own benefit, but they can also cooperate with each other. So, you know, say you have one um, cell or one, you know, set of cells that is producing a growth factor 
and you have another set of cells that is producing uh, a factor that helps to hide them from the immune system. Well, if those two you know, groups of cancer cells are together, then they both get the benefit of the growth factors and of being protected from the immune system. So that's just one example of you know, where you could kind of have um, these, these different um, sort of cooperative behaviors that are happening where you have almost this mutualism type situation happening. And so from the perspective, you know, of the cancer cells, right, they're cooperating with each other. But um, from the perspective of our bodies, um, that is cheating that is happening, right? That, that aggregation of cancer cells with multiple different, you know, types of behaviors and physiologies, um, that aggregation is sort of cheating in the multicellular cooperation that is our body. So one always has to say, well, you know, at what level mm -hmm. specifically are we talking about cooperation? Um, and sometimes cooperation on one level can mean cheating on another, right? I mean, this is something that is not just an issue with cancer. You know, in human societies, probably the, you know, best criminals that there are are the organized ones, right? Where there's cooperation happening in order to collectively figure out how to exploit the systems and institutions and infrastructure of the society. Wait, are we so. talking politics now? Because I... <laughs> I was talking about the mob, but... I don't oh, know. right, right. That <laughs> was too. So you are talking politics then. <laughs> it's pretty hard to distinguish the two at the moment. Um, and I remember... I was thinking everything comes back to the wire is what I was actually thinking before that. <laughs> so or I, the I, Illuminati, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> I was remembering this figure from your Cancer Across the Life Forms paper where you talk about how cancer cells cheat and uh, take advantage of healthy cells and healthy cell cooperative systems, but then again, also how they have their own cooperation. And so let's go back to that original of what made you decide to take that article and blow it up into a book. So that article was it came out of this awesome year that I had at the Wissenschaftskolleg, which is the Institute for Advanced Study in Berlin. We had a year-long working group on cancer evolution that Michael Hochberg had convened. And basically what we did was every Monday and every Wednesday after lunch, which um, in Germany that began at two o'clock after after lunch because um, you had to also have your coffee you know so we would we would meet for two hours sometimes longer and just talk about what do we think are the biggest most important issues in cancer revolution that are not currently being studied so we spent the first few months just you know blue sky what are all the topics that should be studied that are not yet being studied, frameworks that should be applied that aren't yet being applied. And then um, we spent the rest of the time working on these issues and questions. And so this paper was um, the first thing that we sort of decided to tackle, which was um, you know, doing a systematic review of cancer across the tree of life because that had not been done at that point. Um, and then trying to really connect that with what is our understanding of um, cellular cheating in different forms of multicellular life. So that's the, you know, that's really kind of where, where it started was with this um, wonderful group and this year in Berlin where we were able, were able to kind of think much more big picture. And um, as for the book, um, I got an email from Princeton University Press during that same year um, asking if I'd be interested in potentially writing a book about evolution and cancer and started that process that same year. So the, the paper and the book actually kind of began <laughs> around the same time, but the book was a much larger endeavor, you know, both kind of dealing with the, the topics that are in that, that paper that you were talking about and addressing a lot of other things like the application of you know, life history theory mm. to understanding cancer on multiple levels or you know, how does um, evolutionary mismatch affect cancer susceptibility, going into some more depth about the cooperation that can happen within tumors. So um, you know, there are a lot of these other sort of elements um, there with the book that um, aren't present in the, in the paper, which is a little narrower. 
I'm always interested in in the workflow of our guests as someone who also likes to read books and in theory write books. Um, so I'm curious about your workflow. I noticed in your intro some of the same folks that you're working with with Zam, um, Nicole and Christina were also involved in in at least you you acknowledge their their help uh, at some point. I don't know if they're there through the whole process, but What's your workflow look like? How do you go about writing a book? First of all, there's a huge team of people like helping with Zam and that help with, you know, running our projects, the Human Generosity Project, this cooperation initiative at ASU. Um, And so Nicole and Christina, um, they're big parts of those. They also help to run the um, Arizona Cancer Evolution Center. So they're... um, you know, administrative and organizational assistance is um, something that, you know, not only do I rely on, but um, Carlo Maley, who is a director of Arizona Cancer Evolution Center, he relies on them a lot for, you know, help with various projects there. Um, so, so yeah, so they're involved in pretty much, you know, everything on the administrative side. Um, and when it came to sort of a lot of the final um, aspects of getting um, sort of the copy in for my book. So making sure that all the notes were um, properly lined up and, you know, checking to see that, you know, things were kind of as they should be. They were a, a big help um, at that stage. So that that allows me to kind of stay a little more focused on the big picture rather than having to, you know, be getting in the the weeds with with checking every little thing and you know making sure that the index lines up and and all of that so um so having that is having their help is is really amazing because uh it like i said it it does let me think big picture and also think about sort of the next thing so yeah and in terms of like my more like Mm day-to-day workflow. I, in principle, try to um, keep Thursday and Friday um, for writing, um, either for writing papers or working on my next book or writing pieces for general audiences. And um, also, again, in principle, from 8 to 10 in the morning before my workday starts, I have time for that. But that that's all in principle and in practice, um, probably more than half of that time gets um, cannibalized by urgent things that have to happen or meetings that can't happen except at that time because it's with someone overseas, you know, stuff like that. But all that being said, you know, I'd say every month I have probably, you know, three, maybe four days when my main focus is writing. Okay. And, um, in the you know most intense stages of working on my book, it was um, you know more like ten days. Like I would you know go away for the weekend, a long weekend, and just write from you know Thursday morning until Sunday night. You know two weekends, um, and and so I have three kids, right? So <laughs> that relies on the um, cooperation of uh, my wonderful husband, um, who also is an academic, Carlo Mele. Um, And so, you know, when I was doing that, and now when I still, you know, sometimes I'm focusing on writing over a weekend, um, he takes care of all the kids. So how old are your kids? uh, 15, 13, and eight. Uh, So you've alluded to it when you were saying that having, you know, a lot of that additional help allows you to think big picture, but also look at the next step. So what's the next book you've got cooking? I've got two things in the pipeline. So one is sort of a a short book about um, essentially what zombies and the zombie apocalypse can teach us about being human. Mm. And um, I've got another sort of longer, slightly more academic book um, about zombification and hijacking and um, how that works across lots of different systems. Is it too much to hope that the first book about what zombies can teach us about being human is in graphic novel form? (laughs) <laughs> there will I mean, be illustrations um by neil smith so i mean like given yeah. the given the illustrations you have associated with everything you do i would kind of love that in a graphic novel version <laughs> i i totally agree and i do have um some plans for something that is much more graphically oriented in the medium term um so yeah uh but 
I, I mean, I, I love working with Neil Smith, who's a, you know, the illustrator for Zombified and for Zam. Um, and it's a, uh, it makes it also just really fun to, to envision, you know, these worlds and then see them come to life or undeath or whatever um, with Neil's illustrations. So. Yeah. As someone who came out of the, 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 I guess the punk rock and pulp fiction pulp pulp world of my younger period of life uh it totally definitely appeals to me in a lot of ways and the the big daddy rod hot rod stuff like zombies it all crisscrosses but what we were talking about before in our intro before you got on was kara's recent um venture which was designed as a uh things for her niece uh making science experiments for her niece to have more to do has blossomed and I can see her, the wheels, her gerbil is running in her head of, of uh, <laughs> You don't have a homunculus, you have a gerbil, gerbil. But to say, I think there. all the gerbils have left Maybe. at this point. <laughs> I, I think she's got a, a zombie gerbil wheels. right now. Empty <laughs> wheels spinning <laughs> uselessly. Her, she's got a phantom wheel flying at a rapid pace. But to take us back to sort of the, the meat of your book, one of the other things I wanted to, to sort of bring up, um, we it, here at Alabama, and I don't know to, to what extent Kara gets this, but we, we do a lot of, with um, public health. Uh, a lot of our students, especially in our graduate program, are interested in, in health applications. So I actually have my grad students right now reading your book and in the, your anthropology department, your colleagues, Alex Brewis and Amber Wudich have a book called um, Lazy, Crazy, and Disgusting. So they're reading both of those <laughs> nice. this, this week. And, and I see continuities there with the public health piece. And I specifically was thinking about how you pulled your name and your, your background out, right? You use Athena as the model for battling cancer rather than Aries. And I wonder if you could speak to that and what those two symbolize. Yeah, sure. So uh, I, before I was a evolution nerd, I was a Greek mythology nerd. So <laughs> I spent my early adolescence um, kind of obsessively reading um, all sorts of Greek mythology. And um, my grandmother, who I'm named after, she's also Athena, and I um, always kind of resonated with uh Athena, my which my middle name actually, my first name is Christina, but I kind of ditched that um, late in my adolescence and decided Athena was just what I wanted to go with. And you know, I, I always just love this, you know, what what Athena represents, which is essentially to um, take wisdom and knowledge about the world and then use that um, for strategy to to build right and and if you have to have conflict um then you think about how to have that conflict in a way that you know minimizes the loss that you would experience um and often that actually means um not doing undue harm on <laughs> to your enemies it, it's you know kind of similar to the art of war idea right is like if you can understand where your enemy is coming from um, then you're actually in the best position to deal with um, the threat in a way that both in the sort of short term and in the long term will lead to to better outcomes and in greek mythology there's a sort of tension often between you know athena's approach to conflict which is to be strategic to consider what the interests are of the other side um, and the biases of the other side and um, you know kind of plot a way through that takes all that information into account versus Ares who is um, I don't know he's kind of a bro who just likes to you know like have bloodshed right he's just like yeah let's go in and like you know he just loves a fight and you know, the fight, like for the sake of the fight. Mm -hmm. And um, I think in the way that we approach cancer, there, there has kind of been a lot of this, you know, fight for the sake of the fight for, you know, not losing in the war against cancer. Uh, and there's been less of, you know, well, how do we actually consider the strategic landscape of, you know, well, what happens after 
you, you know, fight in this um, Aries-like way. Uh, And, you know, the consequences are evolutionary, right? That if you use the highest dose chemotherapy possible, you then create this fitness gradient where the cells that survive the best are the ones that are the most resistant. Uh, And then those cells are the ones that stick around. So then you can't also go you back. tend to sterilize people with that dose and undermine their fitness. Yeah, there there is this other element, which is that you know high doses are toxic even to a lot of cells that are not cancer. Mm. So you know having having a little bit of perspective of well you know ultimately what is the outcome that we want? Well, the outcome that we want probably is, you know, for the person to survive the longest and have a decent quality of life as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes that is the same thing as having the cancer, um, be not detectable, right? Mm -hmm. Like sometimes eliminating the cancer means extending life, but not always, you know, and there's this approach called adaptive therapy that, um, Bob Gatenby at Moffitt Cancer Center has pioneered where rather than using the highest dose possible, you essentially use doses to keep the tumor from growing. And that actually um, in mouse models keeps mice alive indefinitely. And it's been in clinical trials now for prostate cancer, where it has been having astounding success at um, keeping men alive who have advanced prostate cancer for much longer than the standard therapy. Hmm. So, you know, we, you know, as a sort of society approaching cancer, I think there's been a big blind spot um, for, you know, ways to approach cancer that involve um, not just trying to eradicate the cancer. You know, like, how is there a way to coexist with the cancer where we can actually keep it under control and therefore live a long and high quality life um, while having a tumor? that is being kept under control. So it's kind of like, how do we live with cancer as opposed to just having this notion, well, if the cancer is alive, then we've lost. So what is, I mean, when you think about it from the medical practice point of view, how amenable do you think medical practitioners and oncologists are to that idea versus like, let's nuke the tumor, uh, no matter the damage? Yeah, I think it's actually, we're kind of at a, a point now where it's a bit of a turning point in terms of the way that um, oncologists are, are thinking about cancer at a lot of the, um, you know, institutions where they're kind of practicing um, the most advanced, you know, cutting edge techniques. Um, this idea of, you know, not just uh, trying to eliminate the tumor, but you know, how, how can you actually use lower doses and keep it under control? Those are things that, um, that are, are starting to be used more and more. There's a related, um, it, it's it's similar in some ways um, to adaptive ther- not therapy, not exactly the same thing, um, called metronomic therapy, which is essentially you're kind of um, hitting the tumor with lower doses uh, in a, you know, over a longer period of time. But it, that's a diff- it's different from adaptive therapy because adaptive therapy is conditional on the growth of the tumor. So they're slightly different, but, um, all in all, this move away from just, well, just hit it with super high dose therapy to try to make it so that you can't see the tumor at the moment. That is, I think, not as as blanket like a approach as it used to be. There's much more, I think, openness to alternative kind of, you know, dosing protocols and, um, you know, adaptive therapy or things that are like adaptive therapy are, um, are definitely being considered and and used, um, but it it's challenging to have um, have it come into more general practice, like as a protocol. Because <laughs> ironically, you can use it with any drug, so there is no drug company that can benefit from funding the clinical trials. Uh, to, you know, get it kind of out much more broadly. So, so moving this forward has really been relying on, you know, getting funding from government agencies and other foundations and things to do the work because, um, you know, it can be used with 
with any drug. It's an algorithm, basically, you know, or a set of algorithms around how you how you treat cancer. Um, and unfortunately, that doesn't line up with the market incentives for um, you know developing new new cancer treatments. So that's a little bit of a barrier, I think, to the dissemination. So I like the way the metaphors that you use both help us understand cancer better, but also help us think of cancer to understand other systems better. And that, that sort of helps me put this next question into context. And I, and I said, I, I, I have my grad students reading this, so I crowdsourced a few questions, or I basically asked them if they had any questions they wanted to, to ask. And Julia Sponholtz, who's a master's student who's really good at reading closely, uh, sent me this one, which, which is from your chapter where you both talk about dogs and Tasmanian devils. And as the owner, you talk about Alaskan Malamutes and I have a Husky, so I feel it's close enough mm -hmm. for my heart to, to melt a little. And then when, 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 when my kids were young, they actually did a, a fundraising thing for Tasmanian devil cancer stuff. So this one, this sort of goes to that. So you, you, it, it's the canine transmissible venereal tumor syndrome, which is a transmissible cancer that apparently developed around 10,000 years ago. And this is completely bizarre to me, but it's considered a unicellular species of, did I read this right? Yes. Not yeah. dog cancer, of a dog. Yeah, it's a dog. It's, it's just a, a unicellular dog. It's a dog. <laughs> So her question is, uh, can that tell us anything about dogs 10,000 years ago? My question is, what the fuck? It's a dog. <laughs> Wait, I can swear? You can yeah, swear yeah. away. Fuck yeah. All right, good. Because I've been holding back a little bit. It's my uh, natural language to swear. Yes, so. Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I agree. What the fuck? Like, it's a unicellular species of dog that does not at all fit our intuitive concepts of what a dog is. No. But um, technically, it uh, it is another species. It's not, um, you know, a Malamute um, disease because it now, you know, propagates itself and um, it has a unique... Um, uh, karyotype, I believe, as well. Um, so it's uh, it is a parasitic unicellular species of dog. And that's all we got. That's that's, that's, that's what we got. That's yeah, the but, answer as well. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it is, you know, it does. I had to read that like five times. I'm like, wait, she's missing a word. Dog it does, answer. It, it does bring up this question, right? Of like, you know, well. Yes, most of the time cancer is a dead end inside the host, but every once in a while Can't you do get, you know, get a dog. You, yeah, <laughs> you get a dog, yeah. <laughs> oh goodness. Um, you do get a, you know, another strategy, right? Another evolutionary strategy that comes out. Um, and then, you know, the cancer itself um, is evolutionarily successful beyond the organism. Thankfully, it's relatively rare. Otherwise, that would be even more terrifying than a zombie apocalypse. But um, it happens. And we have to keep that in mind, I think. And on that note, in which you don't have dog cancer, but a cancer dog, uh, <laughs> how are you? We always like to wrap it. I mean, you've been on the show before. We always like to wrap our interviews with kind of the fun question. Uh, how are you finding joy and fun in your physical distancing and isolation, quarantining, all of the above? Well, you know, um, Carl, honestly, a big part of it is uh, kind of throwing myself into the science communication stuff I've been doing, and especially the zombie related stuff. So, you know, uh, up until a week and a half ago, a huge amount of my energy and effort was um, on organizing um, the zombie apocalypse medicine meeting, which um, was great to have you guys represented there. Sausage of science. Um, Thank you. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, that has um, both been a kind of source of like just fun for me and mm -hmm. also of like community and connection 
because you know there's there's the kind of production team we've been working really closely you know creating something really unique and different so that's that was really fun and then putting the meeting together and bringing together all these people who might not even have been able to come together in person right because we had um people from all over the country and all over the world um as part of the meeting and um you know a certain sense of community and coming together from that you know it was like okay yeah we're in this situation it's not what we would want it to be but within that what are the things that we could do um that are maybe things we couldn't otherwise do Mm. and so kind of plotting that path um and figuring out what the possibilities are for what we could do was really fun and then and then actually doing it um definitely, you know, I finished Zam feeling like I knew a bunch of people who I didn't know before Zam Mm -hmm. and a bunch of connections were made among people who wouldn't otherwise have known each other. And, you know, and I think that's something that it's really hard to have now because of the situation with COVID. So finding a way to do that was very satisfying for me personally. And then, you know, seeing that it served that function for other people too was very rewarding. Well, we want to thank you for for taking the time to share all that with us, to include us, and we w- wish you well in hopefully not too much of a letdown after all of that climax. Um, but thanks for joining us on the Sausage of Science today. It's been wonderful. It was totally my pleasure. And just a shout out, if people are interested in learning more about ZAM and Channel Z, we have the whole meeting available on YouTube so people can just go on and watch the playlist and see the whole meeting. And then every Monday at uh, 10.30 we, in the morning, um, we have a live stream where we have one of our shows. So, um, and people can get on there and, you know, chat with us through YouTube or Twitter or Facebook in real time um, and join the community. So oh, cool. Yeah. That's great. We'll make idea. sure that all gets included in the show notes, those different links to those. Um, yeah, it was great. Thank you so much again, Athena, for for chatting with us today. My pleasure. And one last thing. How do you pronounce your last name? Actipus. Actipus. Okay, I think I've been saying it right. Probably saying it 12 <laughs> different ways. But... You know what? Everybody says it differently at this point. It's like, as long as it's not octopus. <laughs> that sounds like my name. Like, I, I know the feeling of having your last name mispronounced in a hundred different ways. Yeah, yeah. No one gets that on the first go. <laughs> with the impersonation. Thanks, Athena. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye.